0: from the first few verses of Romans chapter 6 and we understand from understood from it that it is by faith that we are united with Christ the implication of this unity is that righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness by faith by faith we spiritually died with him and by faith we spiritually rose with him. This means that we now have to live a life glorifying God. We asked the question last week, does God save unconditionally? We understood from that paragraph in the Bible that God does indeed save unconditionally. He does not save by good works and He does not require of anyone to first become better before He can be saved or in order to be saved. Now the flip side of this question, does God save unconditionally? It's also that we know that God saves us for His glory. He enables us to do good works. He prepared for us as a fruit of the righteousness that he imputes into us because of Christ Jesus. We are saved by faith and by grace alone. But as uh, we have heard that faith and grace are never alone. They are followed by good works but never in the sense that good works merits us anything to be saved. The notion that we can do on, go on sinning then in order to accumulate more grace is therefore unbiblical, outrageous, only reflecting the life of someone who may ask this question who has never experienced the grace of God which he or she accepted by faith alone. But now the Bible goes ahead, goes a bit further to say, what is this new life? What is the result of being united to Christ by faith to be raised to a new life in him? If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, there are other parts in Romans where we get this phrase, if we. Now, we should not understand that as if there is a condition upon us to die. Because the condition is not upon us to die. The condition is by faith to accept that Christ died for us. But it is in the flow of the argument. Sometimes we we use the same thing and we, we throw in an if there. We, and, and what we actually say with that if is that that's true, isn't it? Like for instance, sometimes we say, if I told you 10 times, I told you 20 times. Which actually means, I've told you a lot of times. It's not like there's a condition, if I've told you. It is to say the thing and to with that imply a full statement. Therefore, the Apostle Paul, he uses that not as a condition, it's a statement. And he says, We died with Christ, and therefore we believe we shall also live with Him. This verse states the inevitable result of having died with Christ. There can be no other consequence of this than that we now live with him and we shall do so forever. This this is confirmed in the next verses. Life with Christ upon which the believer enters when he is born of God never ends. Its, its continuance rests upon our uh, uh, not on our efforts any more than salvation by grace does, and by faith only. Why? Well, the next verse answers this question: knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Christ's voluntary submission to the power of death is a thing of the past forever. His resurrection is, in, is the enduring seal of the work that He accomplished in His death. It is the guarantee of the resurrected life of those who belong to Him. Therefore, by faith we can say it is ours because we are united with him. Death cannot lord it over Christ. Not anymore because it says the word master in this church, in this text is used again further down in other parts of the scriptures. For instance Romans chapter four, 14 verse 8 and 9. For if we live, we live For the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living he is lord of both the dead and the living and we we commenced our service this morning to quote from revelation chapter one he is the first the firstborn from the dead and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth so christ has conquered death And by faith we accept what Christ has done and what he has done becomes ours. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. The death that he died, he died once for all. In his death, he had to do with sin as the sinless one who had refused all claims of sin he stood as our representative and offered up his life not to then forfeit it like like we would do but to free us from death free us from death and the curse of death which is death eternal. It's amazing that when we, when we get there, I just want to jump to that in the end of this chapter, um, that the, 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 the benefit of grace is is eternal life, but for the wages of, death, of sin is death. The wages of sin. You work for sin, it's gotten payment for you. You can give your whole life to Him to sin. He's going to pay you sometime with death. He wouldn't like to do that, but Jesus Christ came into this world and He gave His life so that when by faith we are united with Him, His life He gives to us so that even when we die, we live. Forever. Because Christ died once for all. It doesn't say that Christ died once upon a time. That's not what it says there. The Greek word's very, very clear about that. It does not say, like in a good in a good legend, that you tell a little story you tell, once upon a time Christ died on the cross. No, it says Christ died once for all. And it's put in a, in, a, in a tense of the verb, of the Greek verb, verb to say it's done with. He died once for all. And that's why, and I'm not going into it because someone said to me the other day, it seems to me you've got you've got something in against the Roman church. And always you refer to Roman church. Well, in a sense that of course is true. That's why I'm a Protestant. That's why I'm a Reformed. But you know that, within the in, in the roman church when uh, the uh, sacrament of the lord's supper is, is is celebrated it's done in such a way that that the lord is crucified again every day every time as many times as you do it The whole assumption is that when the with the institution of the sacrament, the wine and the bread becomes literally the the bread, uh, the, the body and the blood of Jesus. And when then it is sacrificed, then there is once again the the, 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 the crucifixion in a way, an offering up on the sacrifice of the table of the altar. That's why it's called an altar. And please don't ever, ever, ever think of the table in front of the church as an altar. It's not an altar. Please, it's just the communion table. But when we, when we see this from the word of God, the, the death he died, he died once for all. I, I, I personally can't understand how it is that people then get away or get by this text. One day we can, in a Bible study, perhaps look into this more and it could become clear clearer to you. Christ's redemption took us beyond the cross and the grave into a new life. Therefore, the Bible says the life that he lives, he lives to God. This phrase suggests all that is involved in his life, its fullness and its power. He lives to God. The contrast between this and the death that he died is in the matter of the relation to sin. When Christ died, he died for sin. He took sin upon him. And he was the end to sin for those who believe in him. And therefore, it would be outrageous to think that the, 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 uh, the Christian who believes to be worshipping God would continue as if nothing happened. Sin in the eyes of Christ is Dead. Christ's life to God makes good the effects of his sacrifice for those who believe in him. It's probably one text that I'd like to come back to in my own personal study because when I studied this, I just couldn't get what it means to think that Jesus lives to God. I couldn't really fully understand that, but I think it's growing What does it mean that he lives to God? He lives to God. I mean, he is God. Therefore, we live now under a new master, not the master or the slave driver of, 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 of sin anymore, but we live under the, the grace in Christ. Therefore consider yourselves to be dead in sin but alive to Christ uh, to God in Christ Jesus because we are to reckon in this matter of divine revelation to us it is necessarily likewise a matter of faith on our part governing our conscience and will we need to imp- Impute the matter, if I may use the word, the correct word. Uh, you, you remember what impute means? Yeah. Think about it. Make the sums to work it out that we are dead. We are in a permanent state of being dead therefore this signifies to us the spiritual condition of believers in relation to sin the condition is not merely that of freedom from penalty it constitutes the believer's whole attitude towards sin whenever the old master claims our service we are to reckon ourselves being what? dead, corpses we are then to in a positive way, not through positive thinking, but because of what happened, live to Christ. It expresses the believer's spiritual and eternal position as he identifies by faith with, with Christ. This verse sums up the whole of the first section of this chapter and serves as an argument against the preposterous idea of continuing in sin willfully. How does it work out in our lives? Let sin therefore reign. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It is now mentioned our body as mortal, not simply because it is liable to death, but because our bodies are instruments in and through which sin carries on its death-producing activities. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So that you will obey its lusts. Lust here signifies desire of whatsoever character. It is used of a good desire only in Luke chapter twenty two fifteen and Philippians chapter one three. Everywhere else it is used in a bad sense, and it and here refers, it refers to those evil desires which are ready to express themselves in bodily activity. In other words, it, it takes hold of our eyes, of our hands, of our tongue, of our feet. We should not think that we are spiritual bodies and we can only do spiritual things. It's the things that we do with our hands and our feet and our eyes and our lips and our tongue and, our, and all these things that would make us do what could be good and what could be wrong. They are equally desires of the flesh, a phrase which describes the inner emotion of the soul or the natural tendency toward things evil. Such lusts are not necessarily always immoral and corrupt, They may be refined in character but are evil if inconsistent with the will of God. Which means that there are certain things in our life that we can just have a natural desire for but could stand between us and service to God. Therefore that could be sinful. I think of what the Lord says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us always lay aside every, listen carefully, every hindrance and what? Sin. Now, the, the, the picture is that of, of an athlete running. He's running. He's, he's in the race. He's running. But now he, he wants to get there as soon as possible. He wants to get to the end of this race as soon as possible. Well, if he commits in, in, the, in, the, in the process, well, it's not going to work. It's going to slow him down. But there are other things too that the athlete sees in himself, and he says, well, I can't run with, the, with what I have. I, I have to get rid of these things so that I can be as free as possible to run the race and make a success of it. That's the same thing that is within the Christian's life. Things that might look in the beginning or on face value fairly good. But if it's standing between us and doing the will of God, we have to put that aside. Because then, if not, it can become a sinful thing. Therefore we have to serve God wholeheartedly. Paul continues with his train of thought, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This word present or offer as it's used in the NIV is in the continuous sense, indicating the normal condition. The word means to put a thing at the disposal of another. And so voluntarily to present the word means to do that as a way of life. As a way of life. It's natural. Unrighteousness is personified as a power which can make use of our bodily members for the purpose of sins. And then when the Apostle Paul then said, but present your bodies, your members of your body, as instrument of righteousness, he used another tense of the verb, and he says, it indicates an act carried out with a definite decision and abiding results. It is not like that old self who would just do it naturally. It is to say, no, now we do things because we have made this definite decision to by faith be God's and to live to Him. The whole being is thus to be presented. Present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. The meaning is as those who no longer are destitute of spiritual life, dead through, dead through the trespasses and sins, but as those who have been spiritually raised into life in Christ. And the result is righteousness, which stands for the right action. God is to have the complete use of all that we are and that we have. Why? For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. The statement is not a command, but a promise. And when I read this, when I read this, something of a burden and something of the yoke just was removed from me this com- this is sin shall not master be master over you it's not a command it's a promise living in christ putting your faith in him accepting the new life dying in him living now by putting our bodies and every part of it to his service what happens the promise that even if like David we fall sometimes it does not mean that's the end of the story it means that we can come to the Lord confess our sins accept his righteousness and carry on with life because It is not like sin is still our master or our new principle, our our new law. Same word here. Sin is not master anymore. Grace is our master. Grace is our new law in our life. Grace in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, never doubt the seriousness of God's promise and grace towards us. Just look at the table of the Lord. The bread and the wine to us are symbols of Christ's life and death, given so that we may receive his righteousness by faith. But also see these elements as a way in which God calls you to a new life. And when you take that, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. May we find grace to crucify our desires and live to him wholeheartedly by putting our hands in his hand and accepting his mercies. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard the gospel. We thank you that you have died once for all. And that You've done away with that power, that principle, that master of sin in our life. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a new life. We pray that our life will be to your glory and honor. Help us, Lord, to wholeheartedly serve you, to every day consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Help us, Lord, to give our eyes and our hands and our lips and our tongue and, yes, everything for your righteousness. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we do not do this, when we put ourselves first and the things in our life that might separate us from you in that sense that we are more inclined to do what we want and help us to, like that verse says in uh, in the Psalms, like the slaves are on the hands of the master and, uh, and the hands are the eyes of the of the uh, maid servants are on the on the hands of a mistress. so Lord, we fix our eyes upon you till you give us grace. Amen.